Hi, everyone. I'm Mackie Craven, a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in business software companies at the expansion stage and work closely with their teams to help them build large and enduring businesses. This season of Build is dedicated to a topic we've become increasingly passionate about, product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with leaders from PLG companies to find out about what it took to build and scale their businesses, advice they would give their younger selves, and some pretty fun and surprising facts along the way. Now, on with the show. On today's episode of Build, I caught up with Webflow's co-founder and CEO, Vlad Magdalen. He explains how he maintained the conviction to stick with his idea for Webflow after three prior failed attempts to build the business, and what they do to create a product that can be used by as many people as possible. You'll also get his take on how to show users incremental value rather than building for perfection. Vlad, welcome to Build. Really excited to have you. Thanks, Mackie. Great to be here. For those who aren't familiar, just give a quick introduction to Webflow. Sure. So Webflow started as a web design and publishing platform. So think of it as a really fancy professional website builder. And now we're expanding to a more broad web development platform. So we call it a no-code visual development platform that allows people to build not just websites, but more complicated, dynamic sort of apps light. And it just allows designers to do real-world prototyping, not just like ideas for what you want to build, but building on the actual web. So everything you build with Webflow is production grade. So it generates uh, really clean code, allows teams to go to production, really allows to skip developers in areas where it's just translation work. And it kind of allows developers to go do more interesting things like, you know, go work on the actual product and work on, you know, more complex algorithms and things like that. But at the end of the day, a lot of people see us as a website builder, but it's very different from like a Squarespace or a Wix or Weebly. It's much more professional, like startups, big companies use us to run their entire marketing presence. You can sort of think of it as WordPress, but with a very, very fancy Photoshop-like front end that allows the same power of WordPress, but without having to code. That's great. And obviously it sounds like the platform itself, as well as perhaps, that's what I wanted to talk about, the visions evolved over time. You know, if you roll the clock all the way back to pre-founding, why did you decide to build this platform in the first place? How did that all come together? Webflow had four founding experiences. This is my fourth attempt at starting the same company with the same name, different co-founders every time. But if I roll back to the very beginning, this was actually in 2004, I was going to school in Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and I was working at a web design agency. As a intern developer, essentially, they had a very fancy CMS. They worked with big customers like Apple, Tennis Channel, Quicksilver, HP, folks like that. And my entire job was to take designs that the creative department, they had a really awesome creative department, designs that they came up with for pretty fancy kind of like CMS deployments and to translate those to HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and like some SQL and some backend code in their fancy CMS which is kind of, you know, run-of-the-mill translation work. You know, any junior engineer could do that. But the key thing that happened was, and I wasn't supposed to see this, but one day on the creative director's desk, I happened to see the invoice for one of the customers. And they essentially represented their work, not in hours build, but in value provided. And for every object on this website, I'll give you an example. Like in Quicksilver, they have events and writers and products. And each one of those were billed at $100,000 per line item. And my work to translate each one of those items from like a design to production code was like 
you know, three or four days. So that's when I had this aha moment of like, wow, the real hard work here is the design in really understanding the customer experience, the way that, you know, this stuff is going to be presented to users and to visitors and like really designing the entire experience. And I'm just here as a pretty fancy translator into the CMS. And this is so valuable. I'm being paid, you know, in $10 an hour work to do this work, but it's actually worth so much more. And that's when the initial aha moment of like, wow, this work that I'm doing is totally automatable. I could empower the design team to just do this work directly for the web, for the medium that they're designing for. And it kind of removes the need for the slow translation layer. And that was, I think, combined with the fact that two years before, I went to art school where we studied 3D animation. And 3D animation had a similar type of translation history where it used to be more technical developers doing the actual 3D work and more traditional 2D animators doing actual animation on paper. And there was this translation step. But the tools in the 3D animation space became so good that classical 2D animators were able to use them and work directly in 3D space and just push those sort of animations to production, which is how we got Pixar and all this stuff. So kind of the combination of, hey, creative tools can be really, really powerful. And this is kind of pretty simple at the end of the day, translation work and very repetitive. Why don't we combine these two concepts into, you know, a very professional visual tool that can actually output, you know, these designs to the web without a translation layer. So that was the original kind of idea. And then there was obviously, since that was in 2004, there's a lot of ups and downs to get it to what it actually finally became. But that was the kind of light bulb moment. Yeah. And look, I think the consistency of the insight to what you've developed today, I mean, it's clear, kind of runs through the story. But what, you know, without necessarily going through the whole history, you know, founding the same company four times is an uncommon story. What gave you the conviction for times three, times four, not to change the idea, go in a different direction, but to keep pushing against this, right? Honestly, it was just a mix of blind optimism and this idea of, wow, I know there's this better way. I don't mean to make a direct equivalency, but let's say you discover the wheel or a bicycle and you're like, wow, this is so much easier. Why isn't everybody using this approach? And it was kind of like an obvious this needs to exist, that kept me going. Plus sort of seeing the business opportunity as well. And that was actually one of the factors that kept me demotivated as well. Like sometimes you would see, you know, around attempt number three, actually right after, or as I was starting the third time in 2007, I saw Weebly taking off and I was like, wow, they cracked that concept and, you know, they're growing so fast that, you know, there's no longer kind of an opportunity for me to come in with a new product. So there was sort of, those two aspects of like knowing a better way exists and then seeing other people sort of start and be getting both discouraged and encouraged, kind of discouraged at first because like, shoot, somebody got there first, but then being encouraged a couple of years later, seeing like, oh, they didn't really actually solve this problem. They're sort of like solving that problem for very, very basic websites. They're not really tackling like the professional use case, et cetera. So the longer time went, the more obvious it became that this is just something that needs to exist. You know, given that you've co-founded the business actually four times, fourth time's the charm, but clear vision. As you think about the design principles, though, for the business itself, right, the things that you believe in and guide you as you build not just the product, but the organization, the culture, the company, what are those design principles? 
I mean, we have certain things that are really low level, like we call them core behaviors. Like these are the ways that we treat each other and the way that we kind of understand the world and what's important to us. Some are pretty cliche, like putting our customers first, because that truly is the case for us. We only exist because we are financed by our customers as a profitable company, especially for seven years. The entire company runs on customer revenue, and we're providing this like really empowering service to them that in many cases, in tens of thousands of cases, lets our customers make a living because they can build an entire business without having to rely on a developer, or they can run their own agency without having to share half of their revenue with the developer. Then we have things like practice extraordinary kindness. Like we have to infuse kindness into how we communicate with each other, how we communicate with our customers, how we even treat hard conversations. We have one that is all about leading by serving others. Like we lead the industry by serving the needs of our customers, by other people in the space, by not necessarily kind of taking this command and control, like we're here to sort of like take over the industry, et cetera. Like we want the philosophy of a rising tide lifts all boats where we're not out to like destroy developers or, you know, destroy a specific competitor. Like we just want the world to experience a much, much easier way to create software. And we want to change as many minds as possible and lift as many people in that process. And when it gets to like more specific sort of design principles around like how we built the product. At the end of the day, it comes down to almost like nothing to do with, you know, revenue or kind of traditional business metrics. It's all about, are we creating a product that fundamentally empowers more people to solve very important problems in their lives and makes their lives easier? And then all the other stuff sort of follows from that. And I think it helps that one of our co-founders, Sergi, my brother, like the product is specifically made for him. He's a designer who, just like the kind of creative design team I mentioned at the agency, he's a designer who has like all these ideas for how you could build amazing things on the web. You know, can imagine products, imagine customer experiences, imagine like these really, really, you know, powerful website animations and interactions, et cetera, just doesn't have necessarily the skills to write the code to make those real. And the foundational principle of Webflow is how can we make Sergi or any designer or any creative person or even an entrepreneur that might not even have design skills, how can we empower that person to be as powerful as a software developer over time? We're not going to cover everything now, but like our goal over time is for maximum empowerment for an individual knowledge worker to be able to build these like really powerful products and services. And then we know if you can create something that is applicable to one person, you're sort of forced to create software that is not overly complicated. You know, to go back to the 3D animation analogy, we have really powerful tools used in the 3D animation industry, but they can be used by a single person. Like a single person can learn modeling and animation and rigging and rendering and like kind of physics effects, et cetera. And it's so well integrated that one person can create a short film, even though it takes longer. And then that software can scale to entire teams like a Pixar, where some people specialize in modeling, some people specialize in rendering, some people specialize in lighting, et cetera. But it's very important that the like level of complexity doesn't go beyond what one person with, you know, some training can consume. Otherwise, you end up like really, really going deep on enterprise like use cases that require many different people to get a certain, you know, a design or an application built. And then not only do you price up, you squeeze out because of the complexity, the vast majority of people, because now you're creating a product that 
may be really powerful for you know larger businesses, but it's no longer having this effect of creating a democratizing technology that everybody should have access to. So for us, that's always been important to kind of find this persona of a designer or a solo freelancer and build the product in such a way that it doesn't grow so far in complexity, which gives us a really nice constraint. Sometimes it takes much longer to build a product like that because you have to like spend longer to figure out how to kind of reduce that complexity while still retaining the power in a very thoughtful way. But at the end of the day, when you solve for the vast majority of people, it's much easier to move up to enterprise over time because, you know, even people in like enterprise use cases appreciate a simpler to use product. But if you go the other way and you create a really, really complex product that you're only selling to enterprises, it's so much harder to move back and make it accessible to, you know, the individual entrepreneurs, the solo makers and creators. So for us, we just have chosen to go in that direction of sort of like bottoms up, make it accessible to as many people as possible, and then over time expand into more sophisticated business use cases and, you know, go up market. But for us, adoption has always been a core kind of drive that we think will lead to a much bigger kind of global maxima type of result over time. And it might take, you know, a decade or two, but for us, it's important to create something that can be used by as many people as possible. That's really interesting. And obviously, I mean, this is true in many things, whether it's prose or mathematics, the uh, more elegant solution, the simpler, purer, easier to ingest almost certainly takes more time and effort and iteration to create. But as you think about not just, let's say, sort of the balance between power and simplicity, right? But also in terms of a, a user or an individual freelancer or designer's familiarity with the product itself over time right? The first time they experience it versus the 10th versus the 100th, or perhaps a kind of a concept of depth and mastery. Does that come into play in terms of how you think about building into Webflow, not just sort of overall complexity, but how someone becomes perhaps more familiar with the software over time in their journey? Yeah, sure. So actually, one thing I forgot to mention a bit in the last question around principles is that we've made the decision to really stay very close to the actual web platform. And that makes certain things harder and certain things easier. And I'll explain why. So one approach is to just build a design tool and try to like output code or something like that. But the way the web works is really, really complex in that you don't just like draw boxes on a screen. You have to kind of think about how is the thing that you're creating going to respond across many different you know, screens and many different resolutions? How is it going to appear on mobile? How is it going to appear on desktop? It's the same content, but it has like different rules for what the design looks like. And as designers sort of start with Webflow, they have to start to go deep on understanding the core principles of how you build for the web. It's not just, you know, if you're a graphic designer, you're going to be immediately successful with Webflow. You actually have to dive deeper and understand some fundamentals, like there's something called the box model, in that pretty much everything that you see, whether you're browsing Twitter.com or Airbnb.com or, you know, NewYorkTimes.com, everything's essentially a box, even though it might not look like it. And there's a hierarchy to how elements are structured on the page. And you can't get away with being successful in building 
production things for the web without really understanding those core principles. Then you have to start diving deeper on like how interactions work and almost like start to think like a developer where you're almost thinking about events and triggers and, you know, when the page loads or as the page scrolls, there's like certain interactions that can be triggered by that. And that could affect, you know, colors changing or sizing or 3D kind of transformations changing. So designers to be really successful with a tool like Webflow, they really have to dive deep and it becomes a even though the initial learning curve could be quite simple to get like a basic landing page up to really truly build these complex experiences, it becomes almost a pro tool like Excel, right? Like you can do a very quick sort of table of information and do some quick summation, but to really use Excel as a power tool, like, you know, you see some businesses that are like powered by Excel as like the source of truth and like the engine of how they essentially make decisions. You have to go deeper and really understand kind of how pivot tables work, you know, how to group information, how to link information across different sheets. And that kind of concept is the same in Webflow. Like you have to go as an individual, like start to understand more and more concepts. But as you do, you're fundamentally learning software development. You're just not learning the syntax of software development. You're kind of learning how to model data in a database. You're just not writing SQL and you're not like accessing some sort of terminal. Then you're building a UI. You're actually learning how to write React components and link them via GraphQL to a data source. You're not actually writing that code. And a lot of designers are surprised that actually behind the scenes, that's what's happening. So there is a kind of an escalating complexity similar to if you think about, you know, common literacy, right? When we teach kids how to write, we're kind of expecting to teach them the basic rules so they can start to tell short stories about like what's going on in their lives or like something that's fictional. But it takes a while for somebody to develop into like a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. What's more important, though, is that what we believe Webflow creates is this fundamental ability to create a language for many more people to have like this common kind of access to the language of software creation. And then you'll have, you know, a subset of those people, not all of them, dive in much deeper and create much more complicated things when they understand more and more of like the really deep foundations of software development and, you know, data modeling and UI building and creating a design system and creating business logic and linking their application or website to like external data sources, et cetera. It's a type of skill and a type of product that the more you want out of it, the more you have to invest. But I think that's similar to many creative disciplines, whether it's something simple, like sort of being a YouTube personality or something really complex, like video editing where, you know, you can start small with like iMovie, but you can then go into blockbuster movie editing. It's just a different level of like investment. But at the end of the day, the way that the tooling is presented is a lot more human. Like it's all visually driven. It's direct manipulation. It doesn't require like this mental jump between a code base and the result of the code that you write. And we just believe that that's way more natural. And that's how humanity has solved problems so many times that it's sort of like an obvious next step that we have to make with creating stuff for the internet. That's fantastic. And as we think about individuals who discover Webflow, who begin that journey and that sort of creative process, building for the web without you know the need to, to code, obviously you're leading with the product itself. So as you think more broadly about this idea of product-led growth, what does that mean to you and for Webflow? It's interesting in that almost everything that we imagined, like the problems that Webflow would solve, are not the ones that end up being the most interesting ones. When we first started, we thought, well, you know, Webflow is maybe a more professional alternative to Weebly or something like that. Then 
We see people starting to build like entire software product UIs, building entire design systems. Like Zendesk just released their entire like public kind of like style guide and design system. We never imagined that. That's the beauty of what I see as like product-led growth is that it expands into all these use cases that you never imagined because you're giving people creativity that unlock a ton of perceived constraints that go away. So for example, when 3D animation software was created, I don't think anybody was really imagining that we're going to be doing like really intense visual effects and all these 3D animated movies. It was sort of the people who were initially creating the software, they might have been thinking about it as like a 3D visualization thing. But once that tooling is available to people, it just kind of explodes. Like people push it to boundaries that were never imagined. And that creates use cases that are monetizable. You know, just like when we first started, we didn't imagine that, you know, people were going to be using Webflow to you know, run entire marketplaces, right? But they run like very large data intensive presentational kind of products and services. And yet when people that don't have coding skills see access to this kind of power, and you can see this across the entire no-code space, you see like Coda and Airtable and, you know, Zapier and things like that, like being stretched so far, like beyond the kind of common integrations that people imagine, you know, like, oh, when I post a tweet, put it into this spreadsheet, like people have created some really intense kind of like automation that would kind of rival some engineering teams. And that's almost like a free way to develop a business because you're just giving more power into more people's hands and they figure out what to do with it. And then as you start to see those use cases emerge, you get inspired by them, you get more ideas around how to extend the product to make it even more powerful. And sort of like that loop feeds on itself, especially as those products that get created start to make revenue themselves, right? Then they start to rely on something like Webflow as the foundation of what their product or service is, just like Shopify is the foundation for a lot of e-commerce companies, just like Salesforce is the foundation for, you know, a ton of customer-centric companies, et cetera. You sort of let the product expose a lot of the creativity of the, you know, expanding user base. You get to see a lot of ideas and a lot of things get proven in market that you would have never imagined as sort of like a vertical use case or something that could be a product line, et cetera. So it's almost like you get to see that your mission is being accomplished and that you're empowering more people. And a lot of people are sort of seeing this as a enabling technology for them. But the other side is you can find ways to align the product that you deliver with value to those customers. So like you can monetize it to further sort of fund research and development to make this product even better, to unlock even more use cases. And that sort of like keeps escalating. I think if we're doing that more of a tops down, you know, enterprise type of play with like a waterfall type of roadmap, I can just imagine not discovering a lot of these use cases because they all have to come from our heads. But now they're coming from, you know, millions of creative people's heads. And we're starting to see that in market. And that's proven by, you know, we've had like tens and tens of products launch on Product Hunt that were built in Webflow. And it just blows us away because we, you know, sort of built Webflow as a landing page tool for, you know, marketing websites. And then you see entire startups that are built on this as their kind of platform or their base technology. They just you know, have chosen to design, build and launch and run everything that is their business on Webflow. And that just like blows away any expectation for what you had before for the product. So yeah, it's kind of like a natural R&D and natural way to push the product into greater heights, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. By opening it up and allowing your users the flexibility to be creative, 
and to build things that are of value to them with a set of tools, a set of primitives, does bring in you know tremendous diversity of use case of thought and obviously of creativity. One thing that you mentioned right is aligning right against their value, and obviously as you go back to those core behaviors and thinking about customers first, not just in you know how you deliver the value, but ultimately found a way to capture it and do something that many many in the ecosystem would be envious of, which is build a business on the back of your customers and continue to, right? It, that shows that ha, there is tremendous value, not just in what you're delivering, but obviously enough that you're able to begin capturing it early in a company's life cycle. And, and so how do you think about that Delta, right? Delivering value and when you think about capturing it or aligning the incentives between obviously your end users, then customers and yourself? By putting our customers first, that doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, the age old mentality of the customer's always right. That doesn't always mean bend over backwards to like meet every customer request. And what we found is that there's a natural sort of partnership between what we deliver to customers and what they're, you know, more than willing to pay for because we provide them a service that just fundamentally empowers them to make more money. And it's a very easy decision to make to kind of share some of that money with us, right? Like you could pay Webflow 50 bucks a month, but you might actually be getting, you know, two or three clients per month that are paying you $5,000. Or if you're a business that's hosting a site with Webflow, you might be paying us, you know, $79 a month or whatever. But the value that you get from that with having a single place to host your traffic, no matter how much traffic comes in, you never have to worry about outages and downtime and all of your collaborators can go and kind of in a visual way make updates and versioning changes to the website as like, you know, marketing comes up with new ideas or, you know, the content team is working on the blog. It sort of just becomes a very obvious kind of service that you can charge for. And the more conversations we have with customers around aligning our pricing with value, the more we see that it actually encourages customers to know that we're building a healthy business because they can see the cadence at which we're improving the product for them, which continuously adds more value to them, right? So it's not like a sneaky way to, you know, extract some revenue. It's almost like a very natural partnership that is beneficial on both sides because those customers pay us, we're able to improve the product in such meaningful ways that helps them get more business and expand their products and services. You know, over just the last few years, they went from being able to just do like single landing pages to being able to do like really high animation, data bound, CMS bound, dynamic websites, then building like e-commerce experiences that rival tools like Shopify, but without having to write any code. It's a massive value add. And what we found is that when people see how much time it saves them, it becomes a very clear kind of trade-off where that's one of the easiest payments for a lot of like freelancers to make because it brings them so much more business back in return. Yeah, it's highly symbiotic. It makes all the sense in the world. When you think about the next things to build, you know, you've obviously got, you know, with your brother, you know, Sergey in the business who is this ideal customer, a lot of intuition and a lot of understanding and empathy for your users and for your customers. But given the product-led nature of the business and scale, also a lot of data about what people might be using, what they might want to use in behavior. How do you balance those two things, whether it's sort of systems of experimentation or sort of intuition or a blend of the two to figure out what to do next? Yeah, that's a great question. It is a bit of art and science. And that blend is moving a lot more from intuition to 
more of a marketing customer informed prioritization process. So Sergi, even though we started as freelancers, right, and most of our customers were freelancers five years ago, some of that intuition like doesn't apply as much now that we have a much more global footprint of customers. So for example, none of our customers that we had before, and we were building, you know, 100 plus sites for small business customers before Webflow's founded as a product company when we're still like an agency, we're all local North American companies, right? So we never even crossed this use case of, let's say, multi-language, or we never had customers build entire, you know, design systems on it, or try to create a product that they wanted to launch on Product Hunt. So more and more, we're starting to lean on our customers. And we have somewhat of a cheat code in that we have like this public, we call it a wish list that is tied to customer accounts. And you have a certain amount of votes and they can be weighed. So you can actually vote on one thing more than once, but you have a limited number of votes. If you want something that is, you know, more important for your business or your agency or whatever, you can actually take away some votes that you had before and like put them towards something else. So if you go to wishlist.webflow.com and sort kind of like by popular, you can start to see a lot of that like real time customer demand start to be highlighted from our community. That's becoming more and more of an input for us that helps us identify like the biggest gaps that need to be worked on. Like we can't treat that as the only input because even a few years ago, like the main thing on there was something like WordPress integration, right? But what our intuition told us, what people actually wanted was a way to do dynamic content. So that's when we built our purely visual CMS and it solved that same problem, but in a much more intuitive way than, you know, exporting code to a different platform, et cetera. We use kind of a combination of like this customer insight and now we're starting to lean a lot more on you know, like the data that you mentioned as we see how people use and upgrade and which projects are the most successful and what kind of things built with Webflow get the most traction and what are the big kind of like sticking points where people get stuck or like their workflows really slow down. That's where we're starting to see less and less of that alignment to our original kind of like freelancer use case. But we still see it, you know, maybe it's not from Sergi, but maybe it's from our marketing team that really dog foods our own product where we start to see like, oh, it's really hard to, you know, run a marketing site with more than a few collaborators. It's really hard to edit, you know, a design and version it when multiple designers are working on, on it at the same time. You know, like as a commerce company, it's really tough to represent currency in different formats or whatever it is, or like I need PayPal support. And you start to hear more and more of that from customers. And I think we have to rely on customer insights, but also kind of see the forest from the trees and always be open to making these big innovative bets that some of our customers might not even be asking for yet. So like one example of that is we're expanding into something like backend logic or visual backend flows where you don't just build the front end with Webflow, but you can also, you know, like once you submit a sales lead form or something like that, you can actually visually create kind of logic of what happens when somebody submits that form. Maybe like that record goes into, you know, like your database and your CMS and then is reflected on a different page. A lot of those things like people aren't asking for, but we know that it helps us move towards our bigger vision of empowering people, not just to build websites, but to build like full on applications for the internet. And we have to take those big bets and implement them before there's like really significant demand because usually what we see is when we release those like people get a ton of ideas of what they can do with that kind of like fundamentally horizontal enabling technology and they push that to even limits that we you know couldn't imagine so i guess that's a long-winded way of saying that it's a mix of both (laughs) like gut sense and intuition and increasingly so like what are our customers actually saying
That's great. And maybe going, you know, all the way back, almost before the Webflow journey, what advice would you give to yourself before the first founding that you almost certainly wouldn't have listened to then? Deliver value faster. Don't shoot for perfection. You know, as a designer, as an engineer, I had this bias towards, you know, it's not ready to ship. You know, customers are not going to be willing to pay for this. You know, even when we launched post YC, you know, we're working on Webflow for six months straight. It was around demo day and we only had sort of like the visual builder and we're like, nobody's going to pay for this. You can't really do much with this except like export the code and take it somewhere else, which is like really painful. We can't really launch this without a full CMS. And thankfully, the partners at YC were like, all right, we're going to kick you out unless you ship in the next two weeks. So we, we sort of, you know, had this fire under our butts to just ship something. And they were like, and you have to start charging. And we we're really, really, really uncomfortable with that because we thought we were going to insult people. Like, how can you pay, you know, 19 bucks for this tool that only does like a single page and you can't do blogging or whatever. But it ended up that even though it wasn't applicable to a lot of people that were kind of in our shoes as freelancers and, you know, they couldn't build most of their sites in it, there were enough people for whom it was like just foundationally really empowering. And by the time we even built that CMS, the thing we thought was a must have before launching on 1.0, it was two years later and we were already doing $2 million in the ARR on the like kind of simpler product. And over time, we learned over and over like our sort of monolithic ideas for like this big, you know, blowout feature that we think, you know, needs to be perfected and, you know, come with all these bells and whistles. We keep finding out that what people really want is like incremental value added much sooner that over time can total those things. But like, why keep this more limited functionality away from customers' hands? Because it just empirically gives them more power now, even though it's not like that ultimate vision that you have. And early on, you know, if somebody was to tell me that, I would sort of roll my eyes and like, yeah, whatever you say, right? I just didn't believe that. And I think it took five years of kind of incrementally building stuff at Webflow and like having a lot of these mistakes where we try to build like really, really big features. And, you know, the bigger they get, the more delayed they get, the more complex they get, the more people kind of get discouraged that, you know, we're behind schedule, et cetera, that we just kind of keep learning that lesson over and over that stuff in much smaller chunks can be just as valuable, if not more valuable over time, because you're making people wait less and you're giving them some new functionality, even if it's incremental and relatively small that is just overall better for your customers and honestly puts them first, even if you're a little uncomfortable and sometimes a lot uncomfortable with like the level of polish or the level of like functionality and power that you were originally envisioning. You can always get to that vision over time. Just keep iterating. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people have that same mindset early on of like, I just have to get it perfect before people will, you know, really get power from this, or we have to fix this leaky bucket before, you know, posting it on product hunt or whatever. Sure, optimization makes sense, but you just got to go for it sometimes. And in that sense, I like Colin Powell's, like he has this decision framework around like when is something kind of ready or when should you kind of make the call to go for it or to launch something. And if you're waiting until like you're like 100% comfortable with something, you're waiting way too long, you're wasting time. But if you're kind of before the 40% mark, then you're just being sloppy and potentially hurting your customers. But right around like the 70% mark, where you're like, oh, okay, there's some stuff that I'm still uncomfortable with, but it's good enough for people to get value from it now and we'll keep iterating and, and kind of making it better. Uh, that's kind of that bias for more speed for customers would make a lot of startups find a lot more traction sooner and a lot more customers get value sooner. 
It's a great insight. And I can absolutely say, you know, as a former engineer myself, I know that feeling. And I think many, many uh, out there do. And it's one of those things that, you know, I, I agree, you can tell folks and I continue to preach it. But in some cases, maybe you have to live it to learn it. But it's an incredibly valuable, valuable insight. We're a little short on time, but I've always found it to be fun to dive into uh, a bit of personal history, things that are outside the scope of, you know, maybe day to day as uh, founder and CEO. And, and so, you know, it's still a little broadly related to entrepreneurship or at least work. But as you roll back the clock and, and you think about just the first thing that you were able to buy with your own money as a human being, what was that? Tiny bit of backstory. So I was born in Russia. We were very poor, like kind of grew up on our own. Everyone was sort of sustenance farming. You kind of had your own well and outhouse, built your own house, had your own farm. Like you literally have to like farm the food and store it underground for you to have food during winter. Of course, you bought some stuff, but like mostly relied on yourself. So when we came to America as refugees in 1991, America was the land of dreams, right? Like this is the first time I had bananas, like exotic fruit, like in Russia, we had like potatoes and cherries and maybe watermelon. The amount of things available, like the fact that there were even stores with all these gadgets, like Radio Shack was my, you know, going to Radio Shack, which I don't know how young people listening are, but that used to be a thing. Going to Radio Shack was like, you know, like all these gadgets, all these things, you know, kind of like eyes light up. And this was around, I think I was in seventh grade. And I remember going to Radio Shack and I saw like in the glass box, you know, right in front of the register was this, you know, like big kind of long black laser pointer. And this is before laser pointers were even a thing. And I just remember thinking like, this thing looks so pristine. It's almost like somebody's like collection grade lightsaber from the original like Star Wars set or whatever. It just looks so expensive. And the guy took it out and showed the red laser pointer. And my mind was blown. Like, I was like, this is the future, you know, like for me, it was the coolest thing I've experienced in a long time. And I knew I had to have it. And at that point they were $200. This is before the day that they were on keychains and all that stuff. So I remember hustling, like I talked to my dad, I was like, what do I need to do to make any sort of money? And then, you know, our family was for multiple years as we came to America on welfare, then we we're barely making it. My dad was trying to learn English, kind of picking up odd jobs. So like money was not around, but we worked out a deal where I would help him. He was trying to start like this import export business to Russia to send like PVC pipes to Russia. So we worked out this deal where I would sort of scan in English language PVC pipe manuals and trace them in Corel Draw, which of course I think was pirated, I'm pretty sure, and translate them to like Russian versions, right? So like instead of, you know, imperial kind of measurements, it would go to metric, etc. So I earned that $200 over the summer and I bought the laser pointer. But then the funny story there is the day after we got the laser pointer, like we had this two-story house, so we had five siblings, so six total of us. And it, we used this laser pointer like to point at our neighbor's lawn and they had two dogs. So it was sort of like pointing at the lawn, the dogs were running after it. And it was all like fun and games. And then we kind of went back inside. Two hours later, three cops appear on our doorstep and knock on the door. Apparently it turns out the neighbor, because, you know, people only saw laser pointers in like movies back then on like, you know, like gun scopes or something. <laughs> the neighbor thought like somebody was about to shoot their dogs. So that was my first experience buying something and first experience with law enforcement in the United States. So that was a fun thing to explain to the cops. And they were actually like really impressed because it was the first time they saw a laser pointer in real life. So I'm really proud of that as my first thing I really, really worked for for almost an entire summer. 
<laughs> That's incredible, though. I was really worried there for a second that, you know, it was going to end with, and they took it. <laughs> no, no, no. Vlad, thank you for taking the time today. This has been fantastic. Of course. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to Build on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite purveyor of podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's read by over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Also, while you're there, check out new content daily on our blog. Until next time, 